You've created your business and now it's time to protect it. Whether it's your podcast, speaking engagements that you do virtually or live on in-person stages or the community that you've built, you want to make sure that what you've created is taken care of and well protected. This is where AWB contract templates come in. They're customizable, quick and easy to complete and cost a fraction of working with a lawyer one-on-one. They have tons of options available so you can choose the ideal one for your business needs. It's an instant download. You get a Word doc template, you fill in the blanks and in about 20 minutes, you're all done. Visit pauseontheplay.com forward slash contracts today to pick out your new business contracts. And when you check out, be sure to use the code play for 20% off your contract purchase. That's P-L-A-Y in all caps for 20% off. Protect your business with AWB contract templates. Hey, what's up? Before you listen, I have a quick request from you. While you're over here listening, go ahead on down, give us a rating and a review, especially if you're on Apple Music. Let us know how much you appreciate what we bring, the conversation, the dialogue. Tell us how it supports you. Give us that good five star. We appreciate you. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Pause on the Play. As always, it is amazing to see you here where you are challenged to examine your beliefs, question your predisposed notions, and consider realities you may be unfamiliar with in order to understand that they too are real. I am your host and conversation MC for today, Erica Corday, here to get the dialogue going. So a few weeks ago, we brought back the episode that Indy and I did a little while back on Afropunk. And that was one of those conversations that I felt like needed to be brought back in its entirety. Because the reality is some of the people here that are listening, welcome, thank you for being here. um, You haven't been around as long. And some of these other, I'll say maybe from the archives episodes, they bring a, a ton of context that is extremely valuable. And sometimes we'll have topics that we bring back. And we talk about them because they're showing up in another iteration. However, there are some conversations that are just as pertinent when we initially had them as they are now. And this one that we're going to kind of go back and dive into today is going to be one of them. This was a conversation that we had actually June of last year. So it's almost a year that we've had it and a lot has happened in this past year. However, again, this conversation is just as pertinent now as it was then. The title of that episode was Why Haven't We Been Hearing Stories from People of Color? Um, And that was uh, episode 62. And it was important to bring this back because of the fact that we so often have stories that are diluted through a lens of a person that can't speak to them. So if somebody that was white tried to give my story, it's going to come through a white lens. And so there's going to be pieces to it that are going to be lost and they're going to be distorted. Very similar to a funhouse mirror. Not because this person is trying to change my story, but because it is impossible for them to come through my lens. And so Indy and I had this conversation with Cher Hill, who just so happens to be my publicist. I love her. She's amazing. Um, she's an amazing woman in our own right. As the owner of Ginkgo Public Relations, Cher has put so much time and effort 
into making sure that people of color are able to own and to really give their own stories and they are able to have more of the spotlight. And so I want you to be able to listen in and hear a little bit more of, again, what's the context coming through of this conversation and really be able to also acknowledge that so many of these topics, they're not new. They just keep coming up. And so one of the other reasons I wanted to bring this up is because we've been talking about publicity in the community. Um, and we actually talked about it last month. And so if you're not already in there, what you doing with your life? Come on. Because when you come in, we can have conversations that will talk about these types of things. And what does it look like to be a part of publicity that is allowing people that need to have their stories told, be the ones that tell it. And we're also talking about what does publicity look like for you? How does it help you to reach your goals? How can it be a tool? How can you wield it well? So there's so much that can come up with the topic of publicity. However, I'd love for you to listen in, hear one of the ways that we talk about it and how being in the community for us gives us another platform to amplify this exact type of content. So without further ado, let's listen in. All righty. So we are going to jump right into conversation. I am here with India. Hey, lady. Hey, and I have a special guest with me bef- that she has been here before. However, there's some things that we need to talk about. We didn't get to talk about them the first time. And the timing of this could not make this any more necessary because of the fact that there are some things that I feel like are not brought to the forefront enough and some conversations that aren't being had. And so we're going to talk about it today. And so, Miss Cher Harrell, I'm going to have you go ahead and reintroduce yourself to those that know you from before and introduce yourself to those that have not seen you here before. Hey, hon. Hi, absolutely. So my name is Cher, like the singer, and I am a Taiwanese Black American. And I mentioned my heritage first because it drives so much of what I do professionally now. So I run a PR agency called Ginkgo Public Relations, and we focus on helping underrepresented and marginalized voices steal the spotlight back so they can tell their own stories with their own voices, um, as opposed to letting the media tell their stories for them, which is what traditionally has happened. And so I want to bring some attention to something. We talked the last time that you were here about some of the pivots that you had made and how you really wanted to focus on a different demographic that you were working with before. But I also want to dig a little bit deeper into some of the reasons as to why you made that shift. So I was working primarily with upper middle class white female life coaches for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And they paid the bills, uh, but it didn't fulfill me in a way that I knew that my work should and that I wanted it to. And so it wasn't until um, a a catalyst event happened, my mother passed away very young at the age of 49, where I had some time to sit back and reflect and wonder and ask myself, you know, what do I want my legacy to be? That it became very clear that I had to tell the stories of voices who weren't traditionally represented in the media. My mother actually was a romance novelist, if you can believe it. And she had a trilogy of books set in Italy. 
Um, and beyond having a, a plethora of like hot Italian men and steamy sex in those stories, it also showed her unique perspective as an immigrant from Taiwan who was half black and half Taiwanese. And she never got a chance to tell those stories or to publish those books. And I, I know that this happens all over the world in with tons of different narratives. And I thought that's such a shame that we're not getting the diversity and the perspective that we need um, that could change us, that could help us make better decisions for our own lifestyles and for our children. Um, and so that became very important to me to tell those stories. And so something that you, I, and India have talked about uh, collectively, and I've talked with India about quite a bit my, myself, is just the fact that not only are the voices not being heard, but the opportunities are fewer. They look different. And then the compensation that you're receiving is not the same either. And so there's this kind of undermining of your value that is showing up. And to me, it kind of seems like a strange parallel to this time right now when black and brown voices are in high demand coming with a side of urgency. I need you now. And so I'm actually interested to hear kind of your take on the lack of value and transparency in the value of black and brown voices and, and stories, as well as India's take on this. Cause I feel like this is not the first time that we had to have this conversation. Yeah. Long before uh, black indigenous people of color voices were urgently needed to help frame what we're currently going through and process uh, what's happening in our, in our, with the civil unrest in our society, there's always been an issue with, with pay, especially for small business owners who are trying to get publicity, right? So event organizers and virtual event organizers and podcasters and, you know, producers and editors rely on the fact that business owners or experts are looking for free publicity um, in exchange for free content. And so the system has always been set up this way. And it has created this um, unfair expectation that we will always speak for free, that we will always give our advice for free and our time for free, right? This is where like that um, inequality of, of time comes into play. And so I think that now more than ever, it's urgent that people who are being asked to speak and to help process these complex situations also ask to be compensated, no matter what venue they're in. So I too, um, a couple of the stories that we're telling before the call, if you're going to go on a free interview for a podcast, um, offer the host a call with you that's paid to help compensate you for your time. And I think that we need to be asking more for that. And also as white woman or whoever has a platform offering that. Absolutely. I'm going to agree with that completely because I think that on the other side of that can come a devaluation of an intellectual property. If we're not careful and people continue to provide so much education and content for free, um, it's a lot like photography industry or, you know, insert a lot of other industries along the way here where people slowly began to just continue to do things for cheap or for free. And at some point there was no value left in it anymore. 
But I think that part of that is that fact of if I already don't get enough visibility, I'm not able to be seen, which means my opportunities look different. My network looks different. My money looks different. Then you get put in this awkward place of, do I risk getting anything and asking for something or do I just take the risk and ask anyway and I just have to deal with the possible loss here? And it can sometimes feel like a very difficult challenge to have to navigate. And personally, I think it shouldn't be a challenge that you should have to navigate. It shouldn't be either or. Absolutely. Yeah, it's tough. You're right. I think a lot of the way we set up the online business space or that the way, you know, gurus in the past set it up, uh, had that that freebie opt-in model, right? Where you put your, your name and email address and you got something for free and then you begin to build a relationship. And most people have been operating from that mentality. So a part of the solution, I wonder, is if we need to just change the landscape to be less of um, giving everything away for free, to India's point, um, but also risking asking for more. Because if we don't, there are so many other people that that are going to, the cycle of inequality will continue if we don't ask for more and risk losing a visibility opportunity. But I can guarantee you in all of my experience doing cold outreach to speaking organizers and to podcast hosts and to editors and producers is that asking rarely, if ever, ruins the chance for you to be seen in that outlet. You might just hear a no and that's the worst that could happen. So I actually have a question there in that, you know, what is the difference of, you know, say, you know, like me or India or someone that is not coming from a place of actually being the person representing us from that PR standpoint, someone within an agency, is there any difference in what that conversation looks like, um, what the responses can look like, just kind of that interaction, like what what's different there? Well, I think you're asking is, how do you have that conversation and how do you respond to potential no? Is that right? I think, uh, yeah, I mean, because I feel like w- what that conversation could be could look different between you and that facilitator or that business owner or organi- organizer sure. versus maybe what it could look like on our side. Because, of course, the only point of reference that we have is what we've experienced and what we've possibly been privy to from other people not really knowing what the true answer is, right. like what the point of reference is. So it's a transparency issue. Mm-hmm. Totally. So the difference between me having the conversation is that I know what my other clients have been paid. And I know historically what other keynote speakers have been paid in the past for similar talks, right? So I just have a, a bit more reference than someone who's coming in um, green, someone who's new to the situation might not have. And to me, that's an easily solved problem if you know the right people or you're in the right communities. So simply asking someone like me or someone else you know who who speaks, um, or even there are tons of Facebook groups available uh, with speakers of color specifically that have these conversations. Um, Just to ask, hi, I'm I'm being asked to do this 90-minute presentation on this thing. It includes X, Y, and Z, and I'm thinking of charging this much. Is this the industry rate? Um, And leaving 
letting the host know that, or letting the, the person who's supposed to hire you know that you're going to evaluate your options and get back to them with a number is a really important piece of the process. So like leaving that room open for negotiation, not feeling like you have to give them an answer on the call, right? Or in an email right away. Hmm. I like that idea of giving yourself some space to really do your research. I think it's tough because again, that goes back to that place of like, okay, so if I get off this call, then what happens? Like, are you, are you going to still be there? And I think that's that part I'll say, at least for me, um, of where I can say in the past, it's been a thing of like, I can tell myself whatever story in my head and just have fear of losing the opportunity because of that, like, okay, am I, am I saying the right number? Am I not saying the right number? Am I getting back fast enough? Um, whatever it is. And I think that the interesting part about that is that black and brown voices are getting the ability right now to step into such a different place, uh, whatever their specialties are of being a thought leader in that area, that there has to be more empowerment around the stance of, I can say yes, and I can say, I'll get back to you to tell you, you know, specifics and what that might look like. Well, and I wonder, is that urgency really coming from you or if many times it's coming from the other person? Like, yes, on my side right now, I feel like I'm seeing a lot of people approach black owned businesses. I'm seeing one of two things. Either they're approaching you and they're like, I need it. And I need it like yesterday. And they're super impatient. Um, And to me, that's also a red flag, especially when you're looking at a diversity, equity, inclusion coach, that there may be a sign that this person is just wanting to work with you because it makes them look a certain way publicly. And that's why they needed it like yesterday, because they need to clean Mm -hmm. up their public image. Um, And that's not what DEI is here to do. It's here to facilitate change. But the other side that I see is they'll just kind of step back and, you know, convince themselves that you're too busy. I'm not really seeing much gray area at a time like this where we're in the middle of literally a revolution or a social justice movement. Um, Yeah, there's not much gray happening. I am really curious, um, Cher, if you could share a little bit about why possibly there has been a lack of transparency in the media world about how much people get paid to speak or Um, Are people being compensated for being on television and things like that? I think this is, it's the same root of what's happening in any other industry where people are being inaccurately or uh, inappropriately paid. It's just not enough people are willing to say what they're being paid or to share what they're being paid. And so until we have a forum and a safe place to be open and honest about those numbers, we're not going to be able to make informed decisions. And one of the ideas that I've had for a while is to compile as much information as possible across um, our most relevant industries and just get an idea, you know, for a 90-minute session, what do you charge? What what does that include? And how long do you take um, 
to prepare for it. Like what, what like sweat equity are you putting into this presentation before you actually give it to give people a very realistic perspective on the value of a presentation um, and what we should be charging. Cause there's just, you know, there isn't enough information. And if there is information, it's not easily accessible or it's not um, well known. And that's a problem too. I'm, I'm glad you said that because there is work on the front end and the back end of some of these things that I don't think is always being considered. This is not just, you know, hey, I spoke for, you know, an hour and you're paying me for an hour of my time. This took me more than an hour of my time. Right. It often takes a decade of work <laughs> at the least. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I won't lie. In the early days, I used to spend hours working on one presentation and, you know, sometimes days and many times in the very beginning where like you're green, you're new, you don't know what's expected. You don't know if people are paid for these things that can look like spending days on something that you don't get paid for. And sometimes even like honestly being undermined when you get asked, well, we're giving you free access to sell to our people. Well, from a visibility standpoint, if those people are not the kind of people that are interested in buying the type of service that my company provides or enrolling into Ericanized Community Pause and the Play the Community, and or they're not even interested in working with somebody that looks like me, can we address that elephant in the room? Then there's nothing I gain out of being able to sell to your people. And so that piece of the fact that like I look the way I look, I, I wanna I wanna talk more about that because that does play a role. And I'm gonna say that it plays more of a role then I think people feel comfortable acknowledging because being someone personally that has, I don't know how many times over my, my life been told once somebody meets me in person or sees my face, Oh, I didn't realize you were black. I thought you were white. Does that change <laughs> something? What difference does that make? What's the impact on? I think know, all like three of us actually could probably agree with that one. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's like oh it's like okay so does that change my check what are we doing yeah I, I I'm pretty sure that all three of us and I'm sure you as well share have at some point been mistaken off of voice alone for somebody who is not of color and that's been a thing too oh yeah I mean even growing up my friends used to call me a twinkie because I was yellow on the outside and white on the inside. Oh, Lord. Like, See, I got Oreo. Ugh. People forget that I'm Asian, even when I'm right in front of them. Oh, Good I didn't even... I would never have thought about that. Because, again, I've gotten Oreo. But That is my first time hearing Twinkie. Okay, I've so. never heard that. Oh, Lord. <laughs> For black people, it's Oreo. Chocolate on the outside, white on the inside. Yeah, I love Ugh. how they make microaggressions seemingly sweet. Uh, right it's like wait so how many ways can you insult me let's see how many foods you can pull in what you got my let's favorite like you're so articulate and it's like oh so black people are supposed to speak a certain way Barack <laughs> Obama has been the only president we've ever had that has ever been referred to that way and I'm like why is it that you have to talk about the fact that he is so articulate he is articulate and he is well, well spoken however you have never said that about anybody else ever 
ever. Like, this is like, what is that? And that's where <laughs> when people say that, and then it's like, what do you mean? It was a compliment. And I'm like, you, you, you didn't miss the whole mark. And that's a whole nother conversation to convince somebody that what you said was hurtful and offensive. And it's not even truly a microaggression. It's an aggression. Mm. And you don't understand how that can make somebody feel and how that can resonate with somebody. And like that whole piece of identity and how you, um, how you perceive yourself and how others are perceiving you and where that intersection is. Like for me, that shows up a lot because my kids are half white and half black. And if you want to be specific, they're, they're half black. I'm going to say half because I'm just going to take that whole half. Um, <laughs> and then, um, you know, my husband is half French Canadian and half Italian. So they've got, you know, three different things that they're comprised of. Mm-hmm. And I don't want anyone to distill them down to such a narrow judgment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think uh, I definitely want anyone listening to take note that we're having a conversation about three women of color, you know, getting paid fair pay to speak. And we sound, I'm going to put in air quotes, like a white person, because that is not a thing. But could you only imagine what that looks like for somebody who may use more slang or has more of like an urban or edgy appeal to them? Like well, it's that much harder. And and I do curse. So I'm like, okay, so if you heard me on the podcast and you caught me on an episode where I'm ranting and I'm cussing up a fucking storm. Yes, I said fuck. Um, is that gonna change what you wanna pay me? Hmm. Yeah, how, how does perception and bias play into that decision making factor, right? Yeah. Exactly. And you have to see this front and center when it comes to other people and how this could, you know, be a part of maybe how they process you. Well, Eric, I'm actually curious now that you bring this up. If someone, if you if you suspect that someone might be having an unconscious bias that is affecting their decision to hire or not hire you or pay you a certain wage, um, do you think that it's a fair opportunity to educate them about, about that? And what would you say? I think it depends on the person. I have not had anybody that would actually show all of it. Um, And so they would likely, they would, I've never had it. it, It's like, if you're racist, you keep it under your skirt. You don't bring it out. (laughs) So I, I feel like they just won't show it with me because they are a little bit more afraid to be called out. And if anything, I've had people um, that have said, oh, I want you to do X, Y, Z. And, you know, maybe they seemed like it was for the right reasons at that time. And down the road, it's like, oh, oh, that was you tokenizing me full blown. And you just wanted to hide behind my face and say, look what I did. I'm a good white person. Right. Mm. And so the question becomes, can you see it enough at that point to acknowledge it? Or are you that good at being covert about your racism? Hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's so fascinating because there's so much talk right now about how white people have to educate themselves about anti-racism. But what continues to surface for me is how much I don't know about my own identity 
and how to articulate that and how to explain what it means, what, what like systemic racism even means. So there's so much education that like white people think we have because we're of color, but yeah. it's not realistic to assume that if you aren't already a DEI practitioner, right? Um, and so I think that's a, a misconception that I really want people to, to think about when they do ask a brown or black person to explain something to them, to do Absolutely. This, this extra work that we don't necessarily have the qualifications to do. Absolutely. I think that, um, you know, we talked about that here on the podcast before that it's, it's very uh, degrading in my opinion to expect that just because someone is of color, that they have the knowledge, the education and experience of somebody who is a certified DEI coach. Just like you would feel really weird for somebody to assume that, you know, every white woman, because you had one white woman therapist, it can answer questions about your human psychology. Like that's just not how that works, you know? And so I, I think that it's important to remind people, um, that you cannot put that expectation that just because someone is of color that they can answer all of your, you know, slavery history and DEI questions. That's not how that works. And you expecting that is part of the problem. It, it is. And it's assuming that everyone has had the same experience because I have met people that what racism looked like to them did not look like what it looked like to me, did not look like what it looked like to the next person. And so to assume that everybody's experience is now this fill in the block puzzle piece, because, you know, newsflash, we're not all one person. Um, that's a problem because you are automatically excluding who they are as an individual, what their independent frame of reference is, what their family of origin is, what their experiences are that have shaped them up to this point. And so there's this place of like, oh yeah, I'm gonna ask my one black friend. I'm gonna ask the black girl down the hall in the cubicle. Like, wait, what? <laughs> you know, it's stereotyping at its finest. but It is. There's something you said earlier that I want to come back to, which was the fact that you curse, you speak your mind, you're willing to call people up. I like to think that you call people up more than you call them out. <laughs> it's been a little more calling out recently, but usually well, it's like, you know. oh, I'm be honest. Last week it was it it was what it was. But normally it is up, correct. Sometimes that's necessary too. However, you know, there does come that question of like, is that going to affect what opportunities that you get? When you are looking to step on more stages or um, be on more podcasts, and I really want to bring this back to you, Cher, and your expertise, because I think that we're looking at is, you know, the three of us might be considered thought leaders. Um, I have my own opinions about that word, but I truly want to know your perspective of what makes a thought leader and dare I say, isn't part of what makes a thought leader being a little bit more willing to speak their mind than the next person? This question has been on my mind for months, India. And it's something that all of my clients, every single one, they come to me and they say, share. I want to be a thought leader. I want to amplify my thought leadership platform. And I say, great. 
what does that mean to you? And they never have an answer for me because nobody knows what it means. It's really nebulous, this idea of thought leadership. And in most people's minds, it, they want to be famous. <laughs> they want to be like Oprah. Or they want to be like Ellen. And but that doesn't but, mean you have any thoughts. <laughs> exactly. Part of the, the term it requires that you have original, unique thought. And that takes work and that takes risk. You have to put yourself out there and risk yourself being canceled, essentially, if you ever want to achieve a status of a thought leader. And that's not easy. People aren't always going to agree. And I think in your recent episode on Font Your Fire, you're talking about how you're either going to attract or repel people. There is no in-between. And so you have to figure out where you put your line in the sand. And not everyone is willing to do that. And not everyone even has the skill set to figure out what they think so they can do that. And that's a real problem as well. Mm. It's, yeah. That, see, so it's, I, this is where I think it's it's an interesting thing because I think that people just want to be known and somehow this desire to be seen kind of almost trumps the necessity for a message, the necessity for, you know, this actual like, oh, I didn't think about that and being able to show up with that and, and yes, be willing to polarize. So I would be myself to not ask you your perspective as well, Cher, on this thought leadership, like from a PR standpoint, like our event host and are television platforms really looking for thought leaders or are they looking for people who are famous and do they know the difference between the two? We have to remember that almost everything is driven and motivated by money. And when we remember that, when we have that in our frame of reference, we can understand why they choose celebrities or influencers over true thought leaders. I would prefer to see London Breed, the mayor of San Francisco, on many a TV show expressing her thoughts and opinions. But they're not going to choose her. Um, they're going to choose, like, <laughs> Lauren Evan Bostick, who runs Skinny Confidential, to discuss, like, her thoughts instead, which to me is mind-blowing, but I understand because she's going to bring in revenue for the business, whereas London Breed might not. And so there is this oh, frustrating paradox of mm. who really creates a thought leader and who gets to call themselves one. You know, is it, is it given to us the status yeah. or do we claim it for ourselves? And I, I'm still wrestling with that question. And so I want to ask, so kind of what I'm hearing is that you're almost having to choose between being a thought leader and being famous slash having that influence. Oh yeah. It's the classic, do I sell out story? Uh, yeah. Yeah. How, how willing am I to put, to leave behind my values and to play the game until I reach a status where it's my game where I can say whatever I want yeah. and no one is above me controlling my income or my livelihood. I'm curious to know if you believe that there's space to be both. 
I do think there is. And I, more than ever, I have hope that we're reaching a place where there's room for all of that in one person. Um, unfortunately, because of the patriarchy and the systemic racism that we live in, um, others who fit the mold, white women who are beautiful typically, are going to get preferential treatment over those who have unique, life-changing perspectives to offer. Um, so I think there is room for both. I have hope, definitely. I've always had, I'm, I'm a cautious optimism. I have cautious optimism <laughs> in my life, but, um, you know, I do recognize the reality of the situation, which is that money runs, money runs the game. Money fuels the engine. So do you think that right now with the climate that we're in, that this possibly holds, um, an opportunity for this to shift, like a place where possibility can actually kind of turn the tides and make it more likely to be a thing than what this could have been, let's say two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Yeah. I'm so glad you asked this because now in this moment, we have the unique chance to set a precedent for the future in a way that, you know, when things aren't in upheaval, People aren't going to listen as closely um, or as carefully as they might right now. And so we have a chance to set expectations and to define our boundaries and to stick to those so that future generations can benefit from our willingness to risk risk a lot, honestly, our, our reputations, um, our income, uh, you know, our image. And I think that, you know, it's... It's a risk we all, we all have to take if we do want to see change. We have to risk rejection. And, you know, we're not all willing to do those things. And I, I understand that we're not all in a position where we can do those things. But those who can, who have the privilege to be able to do so, um, who can be allies and advocates for this cause, absolutely need to be speaking up and out about it. Otherwise, you know, we could, this, everything could settle down, let's say in a couple of months. And, what happens uh, is like scope creep where things slowly mm-hmm. start to creep back to how they used to be. But we are the culture makers, right? We have to uphold this hard line for ourselves um, or risk things never changing. And so you said something that India, I want you to chime in on as well in the sense of, you know, what does it look like to kind of step in at this point and be able to kind of take that risk to take ownership of almost creating your own legacy because a lot of what I feel like the disruption that's happening right now is around the fact that so much of what we know and what we've been told has been curated by those in a place of power. And so truth and accuracy are not really there. And so I feel like there's a possibility right now that what you're saying leads to the fact that we have an opportunity to write our stories and to create our legacies, what we hope to be our legacies, based on having that opportunity to choose and not having to be resigned to what someone else decides we need to be memorialized as or lack thereof. I think that that's part of it. I'm also going to say a big part of what I'm seeing be relevant right now is 
people taking a moment to acknowledge their fear of stepping up, their fear of being this leader, um, because you can't be a thought leader without being a leader, right? And acknowledge it, process it, and still do the fucking thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to be willing to fail. And uh, a guest that we both plan on having, Donnie Jackson, has said it you know, himself, that willingness to fail spectacularly mm-hmm. can carry us so far because even when you fail, there are lessons to learn. There's data to collect from that failure that you can apply to the next thing. But for people to continue to be in this place of fear of saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, um, not getting that opportunity, scarcity that there won't be another opportunity if they ask for their fair pay, um, to be able to ask for that fair pay again, you know, that is what is going to prevent us from changing things. We have to first acknowledge that our fear is there. Because ignoring it is not going to serve us. And we also need that support and accountability to stay in motion regardless and know that no matter how big the failure is going to be, that there's going to be valuable information and data that we can apply to the next thing. Also, the beautiful side of that is if you're willing to throw all in, ask for the amount of pay you deserve, have that talk and speak about that thing that you know can change things for people no matter how it might make someone else feel uncomfortable. And the other side of that, if you have a success, it is going to be a spectacular success that could go viral, that could completely change the game, whether it's viral in a sense of popularity or viral in a sense of changing people's lives. But we have to be willing to fail in order to get there. You can't be afraid of missing the shot that you have yet to take. Hmm. It doesn't, it doesn't help us. And so if you were to make a suggestion or give a piece of advice or implore those listening that have something to say and they have a voice that needs to be heard and that they are a change maker inherently, is there any, anything that you would give, say, support with? And I, I'm asking this question to you, Cher, and as well to you, India, what, what would you kind of give? I, well, actually, this is a perfect uh, story about India is that she practices doing one ask a day. And I think that that's a perfect place to start, something easy and tangible for you to hold on to. Um, ask someone how much they charge for a 60-minute interview or presentation. Ask somebody to introduce you to someone else who's influential in their network ask someone else to have you on their podcast um, or to have a connection call. When you begin to make those asks, you can create the momentum and the confidence necessary to be able to put yourself out there and risk rejection. Um, But also, you know, like India said, succeed spectacularly as well. You just don't know what's going to happen and you can't assume, but you know. Yeah. And I want to be fully transparent. I have that ask a day because if I, I feel like confidence for me um, and the willingness to, to invite people into the things that we sell, we do, we offer to build relationships is like a muscle. If I don't 
get in the gym and work out my muscles every day, I'm going to start losing muscle mass. Well, I've found that the same has been true for me, for my fearlessness and my confidence. I have to practice putting myself out there every day. Um, and I've found that when I've done that, it's gotten easier with time. It won't happen overnight. I mean, even podcasting was something that I had immense fear about publicly speaking, getting on stages, asking for pay. But the more you do it, um, the more ease comes with it. So I, I want to say that I didn't just like randomly come up with this. I came up with the Ask a Day because I needed that for myself to keep me accountable. Um, the one thing I will say on the other side of that is surrounding yourself with people that are not yes men and are going to really call you up. And at times when you need it, give you that kick in your ass and call you out because sometimes we need that too. Um, and I really am super, 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 super grateful. And that's probably like not even enough words to express how I feel about it for having both you share and you, Erica, in my network and in my support system, because, you know, that has kept me making sure I'm doing those ass a day, um, uh, making sure I'm submitting myself to speaking engagements, um, calling me out when even I want to go and hide because this whole revolution has been very traumatic for people of color too. I, I just want to acknowledge that. And I've had some really rough days where I'm in tears. And yet knowing that I have both of you looking to me and here to support me, whether I need the kick in my butt or the pep talk, you know, has made <laughs> me stay on track. And so I think for anyone listening I want you to remember that you can't do this alone. None of us are doing this alone in this conversation, no matter how successful you think we are. No, 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 no. Not even close. There are days that I just wanted to hide. And it was the support system that I have that kept me from, I mean, and it's not that I didn't want to do it, but I'm human too. And I have my own processing to do with what's going on as a black woman in America. And so these are the times that you do need that support system. And I'm also going to, you know, from my point of view, say that it also gives another set of um, urgency and importance from my view to the necessity for black and brown voices to write their own narratives and to add their voices and their stories to the collective whole, because there are a lot of things that I'm seeing look like they want to shift and I hope that they shift and they shift for, you know, for, for good and for, you know, on more of a permanent level. And I know that that's also going to require us to up the amount of what we contribute to again, kind of what our legacy is. What do we leave behind? What's the story? What is, what is that? And I don't want it to be told through a whitewashed lens. And it's not because I don't think that it can be done by somebody that is white, it's the sense of it shouldn't have to be that the only way that it can be told is by somebody white. I want to be able to control what it is that I say, I experience, I stand for, and what I want to change. And I just implore black and brown and marginalized people to own and to tell their stories and their narratives. One of my favorite things about digging into crates of old workshops, uh, old episodes is really being able to hear the fact of like, 
we are consistent about what matters, why it matters to us, and what our goals are. And amplifying the voices and stories and narratives and need for equity when it comes to platforms and visibility for black and brown people, those that are minimized, yeah, that's that's a consistent thing for us. And so I, I love knowing that we've been talking about this for a while. Now, the interesting thing is to hear it and to hear our own evolutions and hearing how um, you know, we're working on our own ableist language because we're not perfect. We are imperfect allies as well. And we have our own work to do. And Cher mentioned that, and I think it's so important um, for it to be remembered that we have our work to do and we don't do it alone. And that's just another reason why we do that within the community. And you know, being able to have that safe space, to have those conversations, to have your evolution witnessed and to know that you don't have to be perfect, but yet that it's possible to get there. It's so important and it's so necessary. So come on over today, pause on the play.com forward slash events. That way you can be in the room for everything that we have coming up. Again, we talked about publicity, the work that we have done around that. You can come in and be able to go into our resources area and be able to see our past workshops and you'll be able to be in there when things are happening. I mean, you know, you know, you want to. So as always, you know, I love the fact that you came, you listened, you gave me your time. You are taking in this information for me. And for that, I thank you. I thank you for being a part of this movement to cross lines, recreate boundaries while we support and not separate each other. So make sure that you are here next week so that you can be a part of continuing to get people to drop the veil, challenge their thoughts, feelings, and actions. As you go through your week, take care of yourself. And until the next time, keep the dialogue going. Bye. Ready to get clear on what matters? Let's do this. From implicit to explicit is a framework that helps you to get clear on what matters and how it informs the way you live and lead in your workplace. Whether it's focusing on the team building and connection that can happen when you talk about what matters to you as a person or how it informs the outcomes that you seek in your business, it can all completely change the game. Having clarity on what your values are and how this shapes the way your work creates the foundation for every action that you take, and then sharing this information across your team explicitly. This is what creates confidence and integrity in what it is that you are creating and sharing with the world. Visit pauseontheplay.com forward slash explicit to learn more about this collaborative and interactive workshop and sign up today. Ready to lead through your values?